Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. I can't think of a better guest to launch Light Culture than Fab Five Freddy. His long and illustrious history has taken him from the train yards of Brooklyn into America's living room as host of the pioneering Yo! MTV, the show that introduced hip-hop to America and beyond. Before he was known to the world, Fred Brathwaite was already a star on the now-legendary New York downtown scene of the 80s, where he was name-checked in Blondie's classic song Rapture and appeared in its iconic video, He was founding artist of the seminal Fun Gallery, where he showed his work alongside the likes of Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, and other graffiti OGs. He also produced the seminal hip-hop movie Wild Style and continues to blaze new trails as a definitive tastemaker and influencer par excellence. I'm happy to talk to Fred about a wide range of subjects at any given time, but what makes this visit so timely and fitting for the launch of Light Culture is the release of his cannabis documentary, Grass is Greener, on Netflix. Here we get a chance to talk about the doc, the role of creativity in cannabis, its checkered past, promising future, and the people he met and talked with along the way, from Basquiat to Snoop Dogg. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new podcast called Light Culture, and today I'm very proud and happy to have as my first guest to break in the show, Mr. Fab Five Fred Brathwaite. We have a long history and lots to talk about, but let's start with the present. I had the good fortune of being invited to view your new dock, Grass is Greener, at your beautiful Harlem townhouse. And as we were watching, it occurred to me that along with the social and political history of cannabis and creativity, especially in the history of American music, there was also another documentary taking place within this story of grass and weed was the documentary about music Mm. and music's role and the role of cannabis in music. Yeah. Because it it seems to me it starts early with... um, Louis Armstrong and, yeah. and the early days of mm-hmm. New Orleans. And right. you want to talk a little bit about that? New Orleans, I guess, was a bit unique. They would allow some in, intermixing of people exchanging other than just black folks being subservient slaves. There was a place um, in New Orleans called, um, which is still there, actually. It's actually in Louis Armstrong Park. But back then it was known as Congo Square. And this was where... Black folks would come out on the weekends, I think Saturday, and they can jam, play conga drums and dance and um, sell little wares and crafts and something like that. And so understanding that history, the people were able to jam together, mix around. New Orleans is an interesting mix of French, Afro, Latin, you know, Spanish, uh, Indian, a whole melange, like gumbo, literally, of people and culture and everything. And so that 
music that was allowed to develop became jazz. But along with that process going on, people were indulging in cannabis. So some of the earliest reports of people like <clears throat> having problems, the problems were related to the fact that there were black folks smoking this plant, this harmless flower, and they just didn't like the fact that it was bringing people together. So they, mm -hmm. the first kind of, uh, some of the first stories about, you know, people smoking this dangerous, evil uh, substance, which it wasn't dangerous and evil and all that. It was race, racially motivated. And so that dynamic begins in America, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And then people like Louis Armstrong and great jazz musicians that are from Louisiana um, were indulging in cannabis. You know, in addition to social reasons of bringing together, which is one of the great like aspects of, of cannabis itself, that it does bring people yes, together. Yes, it brings people together. And probably helped in creating a lot of the jam sessions and a lot yeah. of the situations. That, and I remember and one of the musicians, you know, talks about how uh, smoking would get them in the flow and it was actually like a part of the creative process. Yeah, it was. When scientists and, and people would begin to do cannabis research, they would notice they would describe it as slowing time down. But I think it possibly created the perception of time slowing down along with the kind of tension and apprehension that musicians might have. They can just like exhale and just really relax and be comfortable within what they're doing. And that state clearly added to the improvisational feel and flow dancing around in between the measures of the music that became synonymous with jazz. And when you have indulged in the right strain of cannabis and you're just feeling good and you just, let's, let's hit it, you know, that could definitely add to the creative process, which I'm sure the musicians were like, say, man, I like the way I'm feeling when I'm playing on this, as opposed to too much alcohol, which of course mm. would physically hinder you and not allow you to do those things if you were, you know, making those moves up and down the keyboard or on the guitar, whatever your instrument was. Obviously, alcohol would physically impair the ability to kind of excel. So it just made sense when you realize the benefits from musicians just calming. And then even, it's funny, I think so many things came up in the research and making the film that war veterans that s suffer from PTSD and are getting treated, the medicine given for them is opioids. And, um, of course, you know, that leads to addiction and all these other problems that are going on now. They found out that cannabis could, a lot of people felt like they got just as good, if not better, relief for the PTSD from cannabis. And then that made me think about black folks that were living in fear of doing something wrong and you can get in a system that didn't, wasn't equitable in terms of the, you know, how the, how the justice system worked, you know, and just being afraid of, uh, you know, problems that could incur, they could um, get some relief from those things from the plant as well. And that's also a part of, of your documentary that's going to be released on Netflix on 420. Yeah, it's my a film, The Grass is Greener, yeah. Yes, The Grass is Greener, which, you know, a subtext of that as well is, and a very important one is the whole social justice aspect of the who were the victims primarily, who was targeted, yeah. at, you know, because of using marijuana and the war on drugs to target the 
you know, minority communities, African-Americans in exactly. particular. And when you really do the history and peel back all the layers of the onion, which my film kind of helps do, you kind of see there was racism at the core of uh, not just cannabis, but even opium. I mean, the mm -hmm. reason that opium was criminalized, which was the drug of choice from Chinese people brought here to work on, that came to work on railroads, and they would retreat to their opium dens to kind of, you know, in, indulge in their drug of choice. It became a part of the reason they got that criminalized was this uh, thing that those those Chinese guys would get your, get your girlfriend high and uh, or your... Any white woman, you know, get them high, and then they would have their way with them. So that was the subtext of how they got um, opium criminalized. And so it was same subtext going on with cannabis as well. And you get people from different ethnic backgrounds in a room together. People could could come together and mm -hmm. enjoy each other's company, and who That's knows right. where they can go from and it's, there. It's uh, you know peace and love, which peace is you love. Know, the, the yeah. core. The core of, of the whole of the counterculture, of the counterculture, yeah, right? As we got this into the counterculture, and um, <clears throat> you know, even the word marijuana, as you point out, has yes. like racist connotations. And in today, the modern uh, time, we're trying to change that word, right, and not use it in the same way. And preferring yeah. cannabis, they applied the word marijuana to make it sound more Mexican to give it that other kind of thing because in states that had Mexicans in the population that was also going on where they were like those Mexicans are smoking that evil drug and they'll get your girl high and have their way with her sexually so that was a problem as well um, but black folks what happened to really kind of really probably piss Harry Anslinger off, who was the first narcotic czar, kind of like a J. Edgar Hoover type character, he um, basically whipped up a frenzy of misinformation, pretty much scare tactics. And that whole period we refer to as the reefer madness era, where it was a concerted effort to give the plant this uh, negative uh, perception. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note, especially since Burb, the sponsor of this podcast, is based in Vancouver yeah. in Canada, that, you know, the implications of this are global. They're not, it wasn't just local because the America with its power and its money and its war on drugs right. exported the war on drug around the yes, world, sending exactly. military to to fight the spread of, of cannabis, right? Yeah. And so the implications, even though, you know, we're talking about local something, it's, it was way beyond. It, it goes way beyond that. a global situation. So, you know, it's basically when you really understand that the reason cannabis was criminalized in America was fundamentally racist reasons, that mandate kind of transferred itself around the world with the, you know, the, with a big push from the United States. So every other country that banned cannabis banned it essentially for the reasons that it was banned here. We also gave them money. We gave them arms and sent them planes right. and, you know, wow. like gave them a military capabilities yeah. of going in and burning the crops and doing, you know, all that was necessary to control that. Yeah. It's interesting because in that doc, um, I think it was Murder Mountain, mm -hmm. this doc on Netflix about what was going on in Humboldt County, it showed that after the hippie movement, they retreated to the environment to mm -hmm. live, you mm -hmm. know, like hippies and communes and off the land and do all these like really kind of good, kind of green things. Growing cannabis became a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And then and it was it's such a mountainous 
deep area way up in Humboldt, which you get a good look at in that film. Um, it And basically, the police couldn't really get up and find where they were because they were so well hidden up in those mountains. Mm. But then when Nixon launched the first all-out war on drugs, um, he gave money. And so you see people in Vietnam-type helicopter missions dropping down into these, like, deeply mountainous areas where people were growing. Mm -hmm. And it was, what the hell are you doing? And you could really understand, you could see how crazy it was at that point. And uh, you mentioned the Vietnam War, and also interesting to note that a lot of the people who didn't want to fight, who wanted to avoid the draft, wound right. up going to Canada. And yes, a lot of the early right. the early history of the marijuana... Quote-unquote draft dodgers. Uh, the cannabis industry was actually started there, and a lot of the the weed was being imported wow. into the U.S. from Canada. Oh, that I didn't in know. Those days, uh, yeah. Well, I do know, like, I have friends that went up to Vancouver years ago, and they had kind of an open... Yeah, very recreational cannabis situation, totally, yeah. similar to Amsterdam. Everybody mm -hmm. would compare it to Amsterdam. So I've been to Toronto a bunch of times over the years, and uh, but never been to Vancouver. Oh, hope well, to, you have hope, to go. Hope to go soon, no doubt. Yeah, maybe we could do a live version of this. That'd there. be dope. <laughs> um, you know, you came of age in New York City in the '80s. Yeah, as a graffiti art artist, writer, personality. Yeah. What was the pot scene like back then? Ha. The pot scene, like back then in the 80s. Well, for most of us on the street level, pretty much kids then, we would buy like nickel bags of weed, $5, $5 bag, a nickel, $5 bag of weed. They'd come in these little manila envelopes. You get a $5 bag or what we call a tray bag. That was, that was a $3 bag. <laughs> or you, you get what we call loose joints. And uh -huh. uh, you go to popular areas like Washington Square Park back then. And up in Times Square area, 42nd Street, you you know, you're a young kid. You don't really have much money. So you'd buy, like, a loose joint and hope the guy had real weed in it. Sometimes guys would would mm -hmm. put fake. The oregano. oregano and they'd sell <laughs> to the tourists, the, the transient communities. But the, the, that was pretty much what the scene was like for most people. But when I started hanging on the downtown scene, what was great f for me at that time, particularly becoming friends with the people in the downtown scene that really kind of mentored me, people like Glenn O'Brien and Chris Stein and Debbie Harry from the group Blondie, um, that's when I got access. They had access to the beginnings of really good, high-grade uh indicas and you know really good weed primarily coming from california mm. and this was like most of the cannabis that we had available in the streets that we would buy them was probably from mexico or colombia would typically be brown and if we were really lucky they would have kinds of strains of weed that were gold or golden colored literally and i remember there was acapulco gold. acapulco gold was the famous strain that you would get but you would get really good quality sun-grown cannabis and that was the the deal but then the other interesting thing in that period too was most cannabis had seeds in it mm -hmm. so a part of the ritual was you you know get that album cover mm -hmm. if you will or a piece of newspaper and you'd have to break your weed up break the buds up and it'd be a, a nice amount of seeds that you'd have to get those seeds Strain out them, yeah because when you smoked joints back in the days with the seeds if you didn't get all the seeds out a seed would pop and fire from that joint would drop. So I remember you could tell all the pot smokers because almost all their shirts had little <laughs> tiny holes from the pot seed dropping out of a good joint 
and burning through your shirt. I remember having um when when more synthetic fabrics like polyesters and all kind of weird synthetic fabrics, I remember they would burn in a different kind of way. It'd be like a <laughs> like a lava fire on your chest. You'd be like, oh my God, look, 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 look. You're on fire. Um but you know that was what the weed said. But you know what I noticed too about the cannabis then in the eighties downtown scene? It was there was another culture, which I guess was the residual of the hippie era, mm. where people smoked on the streets a lot more frequently, particularly downtown, like Washington Square Park, mm. Tompkins Park. People would sit in the park and smoke joints. And oftentimes, if you'd go to concerts back then, people might, strangers might light mm. up. Everybody lit up because smoking was tolerated. Cigarettes, of That's course, right. and cannabis as well. And you'd light up in movies and in concerts. That was a ubiquitous thing. And sometimes you'd, you'd be, I remember being at a Funkadelic concert years ago, like maybe in the 70s, and like strange people would pass joints around. And you'd be like, thank you. So it was like a sort of an etiquette, like an open kind of thing that I remembered way back then that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it'll no, come back. I know. It's funny, Remember right? that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Passing but, uh, at the same time, though, you know, there was a still, if you got arrested, mm. you know, know what, what that could be. Like one joint true. could get you in serious right. trouble and ruin your life. That's true. That was the other side of the coin. And unfortunately, one of the things that my film really looks like is the disproportionate focus of law enforcement on people of color, you know, which the the whole U.S. criminal justice system, we have over two, nearly two and a half million prisons, the largest prison population in the world. That's why more than half of those people are people of color and a, a large portion are cannabis arrests and a lot of them are nonviolent. So that's one of the big problems in America. Right. It's also interesting in, as, you know, as part of the underground economy, uh, something I'm it can relate in a way to the Soviet Union. Hmm. When the Jews in the Soviet Union were not allowed to work and, you know, this hmm. was the 90s or when they finally started to leave Russia, at, ah. at one time they couldn't leave and there was this whole thing. They couldn't work. They couldn't do all these things. So they all got into the underground economy Interesting. because they weren't allowed to work in the regular economy. Got it. And if you think about the situation yeah. here... The community that was discriminated against in all levels found that this is the economy wow. where that this is where you can make any you, you know make what some else money. Can, you know yeah. you had really no other options in many cases of, yeah of course there's always exceptions but you know what I'm saying yeah. there's a general rule so today that's sort of a part of the conundrum isn't it that we have like this moment where cannabis is moving into the mainstream it's becoming acceptable and mm -hmm. it's great so that people will hopefully be released from prison we'll get some sort of pardon down yeah. the line that uh, you know will enable people to lead more normal lives and not have to be worried and stigmatized but at the same time it's the underground economy what's going to happen it's not going to go away it's is not it? you're right the underground economy is going to go it's funny also going back to that murder mountain documentary about humboldt county it showed that in the time that we're in, and California kind of led the like the medical and then the recreational, you know, laid the foundation f to show that it wasn't the, that gateway drug that they constantly drummed into us mm -hmm. once people could normally go and acquire some cannabis for some aches and pains and, of course, just, just to feel a lot better. 
But in Murder Mountain, they showed that with all the, like with the all the regulations now put in effect on the growers, if there's there's a, if the inspectors or whatever find a small amount of mold or whatever it could be, they have to apparently get rid of an entire crop of cannabis, which is like whoa, how much moldy weed did we smoke over the years and right. still enjoy it? I mean, I'm not trying to say like we're encouraging a crop or, you know, using pesticides and all these things. But basically, a lot of people were like, look, I'm, I did better when I was dealing with this stuff on the black market because too much regulation can kind of thwart the kind of development of people being able to participate. So, yeah, the idea of... Sorry to lose the sort of the socialization of going to your dealer Mm -hmm. or or friend to sit around with him and whoever else shows up and you wind up meeting a whole wide range of people and having amazing conversation. That's part of like the magic of the cannabis that brings people together, enables them to do that. That Snoop has many great moments in my film, but when he talks about the effects of cannabis and how people come together mm-hmm. and they are smoking some cannabis and you put them in a the room and they'll be taking selfies together and just <laughs> hugging and being all cool. But if that alcohol is in the room, mm. people could end up going at each other's throats. You know, it's just a completely different ending. I even believe that maybe in that, the the basis of that, ad, of that smoking the peace pipe, that kind of reference, you know, what was in that peace pipe was most likely cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And as Snoop, uh, you know, does a beautiful turn in your in your film. How talk a little bit about that? Because I know it wasn't expected to go on so long. He just got into well, it. Well, the thing is with Snoop, when the idea hit me, growing up in a household, which is I kind I kind of talk. You kind of get a snapshot early in the film. I kind of set up the the environment that I grew up around, and you know, Max Roach, the great jazz drummer, was my godfather. My best friends with my dad. They were like, you know, hipster intellectuals that love smoking cannabis, discussing everything going on on the planet. And as a teenager, I was looking through a record store one day and there was this record called Reefer Songs with all these songs. I brought this record. I was like, what the hell am I doing? Jazz guys, Cab Calloway, Fats Waller, Louis Armstrong, all these great jazz people made songs about the planet. I came home had this record for, and played it for my dad and his friends, and they laughed. They was like, I was like, what's going on? They were like, man, when we were kids, these were hot songs, and we know this whole thing. It was a lot of slang that they talked. So I was like, wait a minute, guys were making songs about cannabis in the, third, in the 20s and 1930s? Then it clicked that in the era of myself hosting UMTV Raps, introducing hip-hop, to America and people around the world that had MTV and cable, Snoop, Method Man, Red Man, Cypress Hill, all these guys that were introduced on my show, they smoked a lot of cannabis. And also at that time, I was directing videos while I was hosting UMTV Raps, and I'm the guy that directed (laughs) Snoop's first video, What's My Name, which was his debut. And in the video, if you don't remember, it's the video where Snoop morphs and turns into a dog. I turn him into a Doberman Pinscher and the rest of his crew I turn into Pitbulls and Rottweilers and cannabis was always a big part of Snoop's whole persona. So we have a relationship is I'm setting all that up to say and it was uh, last February I was in in LA for the All-Star Game and talked to Snoop and Snoop said man I'll definitely do an interview for you Fab you know your family but it took three weeks to, for Snoop, who has an incredibly busy schedule. 
But when we sat him down and he started to go, it was amazing. And he knew, Snoop knows how good he is when he's just being Snoop. Because at the end of the interview, he said, yeah, man, anything <laughs> for you, Fab, but too bad you can't use it all. Because he knew. <laughs> and I was like, God damn you. And he knew how good it was. But we had some great moments in him being really entertaining and really informative about his cannabis use, how he started to use cannabis, and even tells a great story about how Dr. Dre got the name for the Chronic album. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, the chronic had become the cool word for the best strain of weed on the street in Cali. Like, that's the chronic. And that's what the guys in the hood were saying back then in the early 90s. And when Dre was huddled, uh, was in his lab, <laughs> putting that record together, Dre wasn't really a big smoker. Snoop was a big smoker. And Snoop he comes and tells Dre, he said, listen, man, you don't got a name for this album, but the hottest thing on the street is the chronic. Your album is going to be the hottest thing on the street. Your album needs to be called The Chronic. And it was. And it was, and it was huge. It was The Chronic. It was humongous, yeah. Yeah, man. speaking about, you know, who had the best weed, right? In your film, Grass is Greener, you also tell like really great story with uh, Mez Mezro. Yeah, so like the weird yeah. who the mighty know, Mez. Yeah, who so, wound up having the best weed in Harlem? Who had the best weed? So that was one of the stories. So when I brought that Reefer album home as a kid back in the seventies and played these songs, it was this one song, this Fats Waller, which was called uh, was known as the Reefer song. It's like dreamed about a Reefer five feet long. The mighty Mez, but not too strong. You'll be high, but not for long. If use a viper. And I was like, you know, some of the words I knew, viper, what is that? And what is this mighty Mez? And my dad and his friends were like, man, this guy had the best weed. They had even went up to Harlem when they were kids to just, just to get a loose joint from this guy. His weed was consistently, legendarily great. In fact, it also was referred to as the golden leaf. I remember Steve Hager, who had been the editor of High Times through the 90s, his theory was like the golden leaf was that good golden weed that we would later have mm. like Acapulco Gold, but he consistently had it. And he, Steve Hager also thinks that whoever Mez was getting his plant from knew how to cultivate for the flower. Because back then we would grind up stems, any leaf, it was all being rolled up or put in the pipe and put in a bong or whatever. But now we know a lot more about the plant. It's really the flower, the bud, where the potency is. And that, we think that's what Mez had. So my dad and them knew about Mighty Mez and Mez Mezro. Turns out he was a Jewish guy from Chicago. He was a, he was a clarinet player. He was beloved by the musicians, but he was more beloved because he consistently had the best weed. And he would post up in front of a tree, this big tree that used to be on 125th Street outside of the Apollo. That became the tree that when people perform at the Apollo, they always rub this. There's like a stump left, and they rub it before they go out on stage. It's a really legendary tree. Apparently, that's the tree that Mez would stand at and sell weed on a regular basis in Harlem. Oh, he would do it on the street? He would do it on the street. Oh. But this is before, Mez was doing this before cannabis was criminalized. So cannabis uh -huh. didn't become illegal until 1937. It was frowned upon, I'm sure, but still, like, you know, you could be out there and have some joints. He probably had them in his cigarette pack, and he just served people joints. And, uh, yeah, so Mez Mezro is one of these legendary guys that was a like a cult figure in the 
underground cannabis culture. He also wrote, wrote one of the best books about the jazz scene at that time called Really the Blues. And he even uses the sections of the book that are written in the slang vernacular of that day. Uh, very little of it you'll understand now. <laughs> but uh, when you read these guys talking, I mean, these were the quintessential hip cats. Like if you guys ever heard of Harry the Hipster, you can go on YouTube and see clips of this guy talking that jive the way the hip guys really spoke back then. So that was fascinating to learn and share that history. Yeah, so in, you uh, learned some shit. What did you learn uh, making the movie that you didn't know or was most surprising? Ha, huh. man, it was, it was a lot of things that I learned that were somewhat surprising, I guess maybe more shocking and, mm -hmm. or tragically shocking, was learning that the situations that led to the movement known as Black Lives Matter, it was Professor Carl Hart, who's the chair of the uh, psychology department at Columbia University, who's a fierce drug advocate for all the misinformation around so many drugs and the criminalization, of course, of people of color. And his research, just being the professor he is and looking at the, you know, at this... Uh, at the situation that people have been in, he found like in the defense of the police that, and well, starting with George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin, in his defense and the defense of numerous police officers that killed innocent people, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, and Mike Brown, the cannabis defense was used. So all these people had small trace amounts of THC in their blood system, but the defense attorneys made this a big issue to these um, jurors that have suffered from cannabis misinformation. They made it seem like cannabis will make you go crazy and you will attack and try to kill or fight or whatever. And that was used in the defense. So that was a shock to find that out. Mm -hmm. The Professor Carhart had read through the transcripts and saw these factors were important in the decisions mm. that were made. So that was unfortunate to really see that. And we put a, I put a scene together using the, uh, the, uh, the legendary song Strange Fruit, which Billie Holiday first popularized. She, another victim of uh, marijuana laws. She, okay. Well, she was a victim of drug laws, but racism, she was a known heroin addict. Uh, but it turned out, once again in the research, that Harry Anslinger, the man that um, became the first narcotic czar in America and came up with all these false narratives of cannabis will make you criminally insane and the ideas in the movie Reefer Madness and a concerted focus misinformation campaign. He was in power for a really long time. And in the 50s, he was continually targeting from the 30s to the 50s, he would target jazz musicians and popular figures that indulge in the plant, and he would go to take them down. And Billie Holiday, who was, um, um, you know, known heroin addict, he targeted her to be arrested. Billie was arrested. And then they, when you're, uh, when you're a heroin addict, your treatment when you are arrested, because it's, you know, is to be put on methadone and, and to get treatment when you get arrested and go to the hospital. Billie Holiday was handcuffed to the bed and not allowed any treatment for her heroin addiction and where she died. And they actually put a police at the door so people, you know, could hardly even come and see her. And she was in just horrible pain. 
And so basically, Harry Anslinger was responsible for the death of Billie Holiday. Um, and that was something that we was, I was just shocked to find that mm-hmm. out. So uh, you're also an artist and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another hat mm-hmm. um, and have known many artists and yeah. worked in, with them. And, you know, and we've talked about the role of uh, cannabis as, as in the creative process of music. Yeah. How does that fit in in the world of art, visual art as well? Yeah, it fit in quite nicely. Um, coming up on the scene, everybody in, on the downtown scene in New York in the 80s, of course, you know, as if you don't know, you know, my close friends, as you know, David, were, you know, Keith Haring, Jean-Michel, Basquiat, Futura 2000. We were all very close. We were all coming up in the art scene together, making paintings and having exhibits and smoking weed together. <laughs> that was definitely our um, intoxicant of choice. And um, that's what we did. And it was a creative... Yeah, like, so it helped, it yeah, just, just cannabis in a way, it doesn't make you a great artist, it doesn't make you a great musician, but there's a calming effect of the processes of the, of what allows the creative process to really happen. So if you're all tensed up and you've got all these kind of life issues heavy on you, you really can't create effectively, but you want to be in a like, ah, here we go. Let's hit it. Uh, kind of a zone. And cannabis is very um, good for that. Yeah, I was at the uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibit at the New Brand Foundation. Yeah, uh, down in the old neighborhood. Down on 6th Street. On 6th Street. Yeah. And I looking at the, at the work, and I couldn't help thinking that, you know, here's Jean-Michel was probably smoking weed while he was doing oh, that. Oh, totally. You, yeah. And you look at, you know, obviously the work is fantastic and not only holds up, but I feel like it's even more powerful today than it was then because it was so, like, prescient about our times and and the world we're in. And Yeah. No, Jean was amazing. Um, his ability to just put his thoughts and his emotions and everything down on canvas in this kind of unique uh, uh, style and uh attitude towards addressing the canvas was a big part of the what of the way Jean-Michel worked and always uh, we were always smoking that good weed and in fact what was great about Jean he made a lot of money early on I mean a decent amount of money I mean he basically sold the work mm-hmm. and so he sold the work he was able to pay the rent keep the lights on we were able to eat you know eat good meals and, and- smoke the best cannabis available, mm. which Jean at that time, you know, I talked earlier about the about the culture of cannabis and people l- would light up a lot more freely in clubs, in movie theaters, in parks, at concerts. But Jean-Michel would light up. Um, a funny story, Larry Gagosian, one of Jean's dealers and a, and a really cool guy um, was uh, taking Jean out. They were on a plane going to LA for one of Jean's first exhibits out there. And they went in first class, and Jean like lit up a joint. You know, this is when you could smoke on planes. Mm. And John <laughs> lit up a fat joint and smoking. And a flight attendant came over and was like, "Oh no, sir, that's not allowed. That's not allowed on the plane." And John, John turned and looked and looked at Larry. He said, "I thought that this was first class." <laughs> no, you can't do that, John. And I remember another time, we were we were at the Odeon together, me, John, and. Andy Warhol, Keith, and we we're all having dinner at the Odeon, and Jean just lights up a fat joint of some really good, con- um, really good cannabis, 
and just smoked like effortlessly. And I'm like, John, I can't believe. And he would just be able to do that. And that off, oftentimes, no problem whatsoever. So funny. It was amazing. That the, the no smoking laws, you know, killed that. At that the had same, a lot you to could do with it. You're right. You know, within yes. the smoking. That was a key part of it. So no smoking rules Anywhere, in many places. Indoors. Definitely put a damper on people lighting up cannabis. But that's one thing that I like about the whole vaping thing that has developed. Because I remember turning you on to vaping, Dave. Remember, uh, <laughs> remember we had dinner a few years oh, ago? That's right. yeah, and I yeah. had just gotten one of these pens. And we and I think Johnny Edwards joined us as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember going, David, it's incredible. And the thing was, we were in a restaurant, and you could take a hit, just blow it down so the vapor kind of dissipates. And nobody knew. And there was no real, like, pungent aroma. And we were nice. And you were like, now it's a ubiquitous thing if you're a knowledgeable cannabis user. Constantly. I mean, I see uh, people on the street constantly, like, you know, holding it tight in their hand. Like, yeah. So you can't really notice. But you if you it. know, you know. Yeah. It's funny. It's almost like a correlation between back in the 80s, particularly with music. So I was always a cassette boombox guy. That was my main way of listening to music. And obviously, a lot of times, I wasn't the boombox in the street guy, but that was a big part of the culture and how a lot of the music spread. Now people walk around and have these little iPhone, iPod, or these little earbuds, these little mini head um, headphones kind of that hang out of the ear. So you don't hear the music, but people are listening. And people are vaping <laughs> with these little oil vapes that have no smell, whatever. So you're still getting it, but then technology has allowed us to have uh, more under undercover ways of uh, dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is uh, such a great time talking with you, Fred, about this subject of which you're very knowledgeable, as well yeah. as many, many others. And yeah. Thank you very much, and we look forward to seeing Grass is Greener on Netflix. Yeah, Grass is Greener, man. We're going to drop on 420, and uh, 420 has been a real special date. Like on 42017, me and my producer, Vikram Gandhi, we were pitching the film to— we, we, we actually set up a pitch meeting on 420 at 420 out in California in the spirit of the culture of cannabis. A year later, 4-20-2018, we were in the midst of editing the film. And uh, 4-20-2019, we will be releasing this film uh, worldwide. Yeah, yeah. 4 2020 Yeah, 4-20-2020. what that'll be like. All right, well, thank you very much. Yeah, Fred man. Fred Brathwaite. Yeah, David, always good to hang out with you, man. Check me out. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at ShopBurb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs> <laughs>